Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Don't Grow Tired of Doing Good. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, November the 17th, 2013. It's been 26 weeks of ordinary time since the last church feast on Pentecost Sunday, an entire half year. Next Sunday, we celebrate Christ the King on the last week of the liturgical year. The week after that, we start all over again with the first Sunday in Advent. But for this one last week, we're still stuck in the uneventful and right on cue to keep us going for this long haul of liturgical time, the epistle this week encourages us, never tire in doing what is right. Or, as the New American Standard Bible translation puts it, do not grow weary of doing good. 2 Thessalonians 3.13 Paul himself had founded the church at Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17. His ministry there started in the local synagogue and then expanded to include what we read as a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But then detractors claimed that the new believers defied Caesar's decrees by saying, there is another king, one called Jesus. Thessalonica erupted in riots, and the church there faced opposition and persecution. In other words, they needed encouragement. The Thessalonians were also confused about the second coming of Christ. In Paul's first letter to them, they understood him to say that the end of all things was imminent. And as a consequence, some people threw in the towel, quit their jobs, and led idle lives. Paul corrected this misunderstanding in a second letter to them. And so he says this week, no, don't give up. Live life for the long haul. Don't grow tired of doing good. Doing good was part of the paradosis or traditions that Paul passed on to all the churches he visited. In the epistle this week, he even uses himself as an example. He writes in Thessalonians, When we were with you, we worked night and day, laboring and toiling. We didn't want to burden anyone. So follow our example. Don't get discouraged and keep doing good. My wife and I recently joined our church youth group on a visit to Glide Memorial United Methodist Church in San Francisco. Founded in 1929 in the Tenderloin District that's best known for adult bookstores and strip clubs, Glide Memorial Church stepped into the national limelight in 1963 when it hired the young Afro-American firebrand Cecil Williams as its pastor. And so this year, 2013, marks Williams' 50th year at Glide. Glide Memorial Church is many things to many people. 
but it's especially about doing good. Lots of good to millions of people who need it most. In the lobby before the service, a Glide volunteer described some of its many ministries. Upwards of a million free meals a year, a health clinic, job training, housing for the homeless, substance abuse services, a program for men unlearning violence, some 50 ministries in all. As we drove home through the city, a long line of people snaked down one block, then turned the corner and continued down another block. They were waiting for their Glide Memorial lunch. Whatever else you might say about Glide, they don't weary in doing good. In that regard, they embody the Pauline tradition. The same weekend that I visited Glide, I finished a book about ordinary people doing good in difficult circumstances. The title of the book is Your Fatwa Does Not Belong Here. It's by the Algerian law professor Karima Benoun of UC Davis. She collects the untold stories of Muslims who are speaking out against the violence and terror propagated in the name of Islam. People often ask, why don't Muslims speak out against the violence perpetrated by their religion? After all, the overwhelming majority of victims of Muslim violence are themselves Muslims. Benoon's oral history collects the stories of Muslims who are repudiating violence, almost always at great risk to their personal safety. Her book is based upon interviews with 286 Muslims from 26 countries. There's a liberal mullah in Herat who supports women's rights. Schoolgirls performing in an arts festival in Lahore. Artists and journalists of all sorts. A cultural cafe in Karachi. School teachers in the West Bank a cleric resisting the recruitment efforts of al-Shabaab among Somali refugees in Minneapolis. Benoit admits that finding a principled position in this political universe is not easy. Some people work within Islam to reinvigorate its history as a life-affirming religion. Others appeal to universal human rights that transcend all, all religions. They often find themselves stuck between two bad alternatives, secular autocracy and dictator thugs like Mubarak, and religious extremists and theocracy like the Taliban. These brave Muslims have resisted the temptation to give up. They've not stopped doing good and speaking good. Paul's words to the Thessalonians remind me of a benediction that our priest often uses to end our church services. I think of it as an expanded version of Paul's mini-admonition to never tire of doing good. Here it is. Go forth into the world in peace. Be of good courage. Hold fast to that which is good. 
Render no, to no one evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Comfort the afflicted. Be patient with all, but make no peace with oppression. Love and serve the Lord, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be among you and remain with you always. For books this week, I review a title by Richard Haas, Foreign Policy Begins at Home, The Case for Putting America's House in Order, New York Basic Books, 2013, 195 pages. For almost 40 years, Richard Haas has distinguished himself as one of America's foreign policy experts. He earned his Ph.D. at Oxford and has authored or edited a dozen books. He's advised administrations in both political parties. Since 2003, he's been president of the nonpartisan Council on Foreign Relations. He says that this book is one he never imagined writing, since, it's argue, since it argues that the biggest threats to America are domestic rather than international. We're overreaching and underperforming, he says, and need to focus on reforming ourselves rather than remaking other countries. Haas's book is really a long essay with three parts. Part one is a survey of global politics since 1989, a period that has produced turbulence rather than the expected peace dividend after the fall of the Berlin Wall. The paramount feature of our world is what he calls non-polarity. That is, there are many diverse and diffuse actors, only some of which are states. Ours is a post-European world in which the rise of China is the defining feature. The challenge of the Middle East is that America's interests there are greater than its influence. Despite a world that is messier rather than more orderly, America still matters far more than any other nation. In the second part, Haas argues that the United States needs to be far more selective in its foreign policy. What should define and guide a new international policy. In quick succession, he explores and rejects five common suggestions. <coughs> Democracy, or political reform, humanitarianism, counterterrorism, integration, and then finally, containment. He then argues for what he calls restoration, that means nation-building at home more than abroad. We should stop focusing so much on the Middle East and give more attention to the Asia-Pacific region. The tools of restoration are the economy and diplomacy more than the military. 
The third part of Haas's book then looks at rebuilding at home. He highlights five core elements, the deficit in the debt, energy, education, upgrading the country's infrastructures like roads, bridges, and dams, and finally, immigration policy. We need to be more restrained abroad and more disciplined at home, says Haas. This bird's-eye view of the world is an excellent primer by a leading expert. But beyond the generalizations, the devil will always be in the details. You can only say so much about energy or immigration in a five-page chapter. And everyone agrees that we need to, quote, reform health care, end quote, and quote-unquote fix politics. But what does that mean? And how do you succeed where others have failed. In his introduction, Haas anticipates two objections, that he'll be dismissed as a defeatist apostle of decline or as an isolationist. He says that isolationism is both a folly and impossible. America has a unique role to play, but it can only do so if it recognizes the limitations of its resources and influence. So, restoration at home as the guide to a new foreign policy is the goal. But while this is possible, it's not inevitable. There are difficult and disciplined choices to make. And if we don't make the right choices to rebuild at home, he says, we'll continue to drift, fall into a crisis, or, worst of all, experience what Haas calls faux leadership in the form of populism that would deepen social divisions without fixing problems, end quote. So stay tuned. Richard Haas, Foreign Policy Begins at Home. For movies this week, I review an interesting title called MUD, M-U-D, from 2012. In this coming-of-age drama, 14-year-old Ellis and his sidekick Neckbone discover an eccentric fugitive named Mud on a deserted bayou island. There's just enough mystery and adventure to attract them that they befriend Mud in order to help him elude the law and reunite with his true love named Juniper. This is only one of three love stories in this movie, that introduce Ellis to the harsh realities of the adult world. Ellis's parents are divorcing, and he also impresses a girl who's a senior in high school, he's a freshman, but discovers that he's overplayed his hand when she spurns him. I enjoyed this film for its intense regionalism, like Winter's Bone or Frozen River. Mudd was nominated for Best Film at Cannes and has received a whopping 98% on the tomato meter. Once again, Mud, starring Matthew McConaughey and Reese Witherspoon. And for poetry this week, we've posted a poem called The Valley of Vision. It's taken from a book by the same title, The Valley of Vision, 
a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions, edited by Arthur Bennett. Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision, where I live in the depths but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. Let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite spirit is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, that to have nothing is to possess all, that to bear the cross is to wear the crown, that to give is to receive, that the valley is the place of vision. Lord, in the daytime, stars can be seen from deepest wells, and the deeper the wells, the brighter the stars. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, and finally, thy glory in my valley. The Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers and devotions, edited by Arthur Bennett. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, November 17, 2013. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.